Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, thank you for these moments, for a new day, for the opportunity to gather with brothers and sisters and to join our voices together in praise. You stir things and unlock things in our hearts when we engage in this activity that we've been commanded, commanded to participate in. I thank you for the joy of getting to, to be here with this family. In these moments, as we prioritize your voice, God, we're asking that you would, you would speak and that we would listen. I ask, God, that by your spirit, you would, you would show us something in your word, that you would take us to a place and transform us such that we would be the sorts of people that release our very best to you. We don't give you our leftovers. We don't let you filter down in between the other things, but that you would have priority in our lives in such a way that that we would release our very best. So would you unlock that in us even in these moments? You are invited. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife is a much better human than me um, in a long list of ways. One of the ways that I know my wife is a better human than me is she's really good at giving gifts, and I'm not. Um, she's just thoughtful. And so she's actually taking it on to herself. She, she gives all the gifts, and I get to write my name on the tag, especially to people that are like my mom and my dad, which I should be thinking about and getting gifts for, but I end up on a Christmas day or a birthday, and I'm like, oh yeah, did we, did we get them something? And she's like, yes. I thought about it. Here's this really lovely, thoughtful gift for all the people in your life that you should be doing this for. And, uh, and your name is on the card, so make sure you don't act surprised when you see what it is, right? Um, the uncomfortable truth under that reality is that there's something wrong with me. Like the reason I don't give good gifts is because I think about myself more than I think about other people. I feel really busy and like I'm doing things that matter and that I hope hope matter to God, but I just, I get busy and active, and I'm pretty bound up in myself, if I'm honest, and so as a result, I'm not a great gift giver, and the even more uncomfortable truth, as long as I'm just telling you all the uncomfortable truths about myself, as I've been convicted this week that it's not just other people, it's not just like sitting on Christmas Day and going, I really wish I had put some more thought into this. But it's my relationship with God that I think I do the same with him. I think I'm pretty bound up in myself, and so I give a little bit. I give the leftovers. I give, oh, yeah, I should have I thought about this. I should have been prepared. I should have rearranged some things or some time or some money to make this more meaningful. But here's what I've got on hand. And quite frankly, the way that I show up to birthdays and Christmases is kind of how I show up with God most days. And I just have been sad. Like sad that in response to a God who's loved me the way that he has, that I'm, I'm a leftovers giver. And this morning, my request of him over my heart and over yours is that in this final installment of Hungry for God, the last text we're going to look at that has to do with communal fasting, that we would allow the invitation of this text to speak to the places in our lives where that's true. Because this text is going to invite us to release our very best to God. 
in a way that forces us to rearrange our lives, to think differently about the way we function in the world because we are so willing to release and to give our best to him that we've, we're being invited to give really great gifts to God. Not just leftovers, not just last minute thoughts, but something in such a way where we, we've stopped thinking about ourselves and we've become enthralled with him. And uh, as we go on this journey, we're going we're gonna to allow Acts 13, 1 through 3, to guide us into this space of giving our very best to God. We're going to start by talking about what might that look like, and then we're going to examine how that happens in this passage. So what it might look like and, and how it happens that we would be the sorts of people that would release our very best to God. Now, the context for the verses that you just heard read from Acts chapter 13 are the church of Antioch that is exploding. It is the church in the New Testament, even more so than Jerusalem, that is used by God to spread the message of Jesus in the known world. They are a beautiful engine of gospel mission, not just in this time of the New Testament, but we know from church history for the first three to four hundred years of the church, Antioch is an epicenter of what God is doing, and it has just exploded onto the scene. It was planted a couple chapters earlier in chapter 11. It is a generous church. It is a church that's experiencing God's favor in a way that is visible from the outside looking in. It's the first place where people were called Christians because all the people around them walking on the city streets are like, we don't know what to call these people. They're like little Christs. They represent Jesus so beautifully. People didn't know what to do with the church in Antioch, but they were stunned by it. And right at the center of what God is doing in the heart of this community is is these key leaders that he's put in place. Saul, who becomes Paul, the great New Testament church planter and theologian, has been called into ministry at Antioch. And he's in ministry alongside of an older saint, probably with white hair that looks kind of like Paul's dad. His name is Barnabas, and he's the most encouraging and loving and warm pastor you could ever think of. You've got the son of encouragement, and you've got the fierce theologian church planter evangelist, and they're partnered up, and they together are experiencing a wildfire of God's movement. That's the context. I want you to hear these verses fresh again with me, paying attention to the way that this church is living with wide open hands, giving their very best. Acts 13, 1 through 3 says this, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So right at the epicenter of what God is doing, these two key leaders, he says, Set these two apart for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So do you see those words? Barnabas and Saul sent them off. The other uh, kind of translation for that phrase, sent them off in the Greek, would be to release them. The Holy Spirit said, I've got work for them to do. Set them aside and then release them. Open up your hands with these leaders. For this community and this prayer meeting, when the Holy Spirit shows up and says, okay, there's this beautiful thing happening. The work of God is burgeoning. I want the two key leaders at the center of it. I want you to send them away. This would be a word that would be surprising, if not a little bit disconcerting, if you're Antioch right now. You'd be like, really? 
Barnabas and Saul, can we do like an either or thing? Can we do maybe, we've got some other key leaders, maybe like Menaean wants to go. I think he might be willing, but, but he says, no, the, the two, your primary mouthpiece and the primary pastoral presence in Antioch, both of them simultaneously released them. This is the sort of call from God that is requiring lavish generosity for this community, exorbitant. It's kind of like that woman who pours the perfume on Jesus and they go, whoa, this was so valuable. Really? You're going to pour that out on him? That this community is going, we're, gonna, we're giving our very best back to God. Our hands are open and we will release all. I think this text, speaking to a church, particularly a church that's poised and ready for a season of prayer and fasting, is extending an invitation to say, are you postured and positioned to release your very best to God? I don't know what that means for us as a community. Quite frankly, I'm not sure they knew as they were entering a time of, of prayer and fasting. I don't know what that means. What I do know is communally, it means posturing ourselves to say, God, our money, our plans, our people, none of it is ours. We are open to whatever you would call us to. As a leadership team, I need you to know that we frequently are in a place where we, we say we're in a room, we're trying to make decisions, and we say, Who's got their hands on the steering wheel? And what we want to be the case perpetually is that the mission of God, God's purpose to bring his kingdom in the world has two hands firmly on the steering wheel at all times. We're asking us as a community to stay postured, to be lavish in our generosity. We go, God, if your mission calls us to it, we want to strain towards it. This is why we as a community are, are getting close. We're always kind of right on the edge of 50 cents of every dollar go, uh, that comes in here immediately going to local or global mission because we're trying to stay postured in this position. But it may be far more than just dollars. We don't know, but what we do know is this. When God shows up and reveals himself, people's hands are wide open. I don't know what it'll mean for us communally. I don't know what it means for you personally. But I would love for you to consider in a season of setting your gaze on God to ask the question, what would it look like for you to give a really great, thoughtful, wholehearted gift to God? What does your very best look like to God? Frequently we talk about it in the scriptures in terms of time, talent, treasure. It's a good way to think about what we're stewarding before God. Maybe in 2023 there's something in one of those areas where God's going, Set your gaze on me. Be enthralled with me. Maybe, maybe, just maybe you want to open your hands in a new way. So it relates to your time. It might be like the, there's a Jewish, uh, pardon me, there's a Japanese theologian who has argued because Jesus walked everywhere he went, he says that the speed of love is three miles an hour. It's how fast you can walk. That's how fast love moves. And the reason that so frequently we miss opportunities to love is we're just going too quick. Maybe it's your time that you slow down enough to invite someone in and to walk with them. Slow enough to see them. Maybe there's some areas where you need to open up your life and invite people in in a way that will slow you down. Maybe it's that you've got some talents that aren't fully engaged in God's mission and he's going, this is the year where you need to stop holding back there but make that serviceable to the whole of the community. Maybe it's your treasure. Maybe he's inviting you to think about your budget in a whole new way. 
that you actually in advance make decisions and reorder things in such a way that this might be your most generous year ever for the kingdom of God. What I think this text would invite is the people of God to adopt a posture to say, we are prepared to release our very best to you. And it raises this question, how do we go about that? How might this text train us to adopt that posture? Because I've already confessed to you, and it's true, that that's not my natural posture. I keep the very best for me because I'm doing stuff and I need it. I'm going to use all of these resources on myself because I, I need my time and my treasure. And I've been asking, how, how does this text unlock it for us? What do we see in the hearts and the minds of these people that get them to this posture? There's a few things that I think emerge in the text. The first is this. They are prepared to release their very best to God because their activity is enveloped by prayer and fasting. It's the envelope within which their decision-making is covered, is contained. Did you see it in the text? Look back with me. Verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So there's a word from God and a decision to obey that word that is surrounded at the front end and the back end by fasting and prayer. As you know, through the month of January, we've been exploring all the different moments where the community is engaged in a communal act of fasting and prayer. Here is a New Testament example, and in that space, we see that covered over in that envelope of fasting is a a radical decision to open up their hands in a new way. Um, It begins with fasting. It ends with fasting. And they're not there just trying to seek a word from God. They're not trying to make a a strategic decision as a leadership team. It doesn't seem that that's the the primary reason they've come together. It says they were worshiping. It literally means ministering or sacrificing. They just came to pour out their blessings on God and to hunger for him. And then in that space, he spoke and they responded. The thing that covered it over was their fasting and prayer. In some ways, I think what is happening is it's almost like a stripping away of all of the, the clutter the confusion, the busyness. Keep in mind, the context in Antioch is everything's exploding. Daily, people are being added to their number to the point where people are in Jerusalem are going, what is happening in Antioch? This thing is spreading and everybody is hearing. And if you're at the epicenter trying to lead this thing that daily is growing, I have to believe that it's like, we got stuff to do. Who's gonna address this? Who's gonna take care of this? But it's, it's the fasting that strips away All of the forced busyness, the exhaustion, the confusion, it settles them down long enough to hear something and respond. Fasting is preparing the way for them to be able to engage. This is one of the reasons we do this. And as we prepare tomorrow to launch out on 30 days of prayer and fasting, I just want to, I want to give some practical kind of words to help us think about this envelope. I just want to identify a couple of pitfalls and a couple of practical handles if, if you're just kind of stepping into this for the first thing, for the first time. Um, three pitfalls that could really interrupt this for you or for us as a community. One is legalism. We're talking about this thing a lot that for the legalist, 
portion of our heart we can latch onto and go, yeah, yeah, if I do that well, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be good and approved before God. I did it just right. I did it like the preacher said. I did it in community in a way that everybody saw it. And that can, that can really rob us. I want us to note that in this text, it says they were, they were worshiping and fasting literally ministering or sacrificing to God. They're just going, God, we just want to give you ourselves. It was, it was a journey of intimacy, not of religion. It was a journey of saying, we want to make space for you and declutter so that we can see and receive from you more fully. A real pitfall here would be, would be legalism, trying to check a box together. A second would be improper expectations. If you've never fasted before, it's easy to think like, oh, this is like, this is like advanced level spirituality. And when I start taking that course, that's when my feet start like levitating and I just kind of float through life. Like I just kind of have that real spiritual air about me. Listen, there are a few things that will make you feel more human than fasting. It, it doesn't cause you to levitate. It like presses you down into the earth more. Like you feel your weakness and frailty as a human. You may with a day of fasting experiencing nothing other than a headache. That may be the experience, spiritually speaking. But the reason it's worthwhile is that as we hunger and we feel the frailty of our bodies, we are opening ourselves up. We're directing that hunger to God and saying, in that space, fill me up. Work the fruit of the Spirit in me. I feel my lack of patience. When I'm hungry and I have a headache, I am not patient which means I need the miraculous fruit of the Spirit to show up on my branch. Like, make me more patient and more loving and more joyful. It is an invitation to feel the frailty of our humanness, not to feel the power of our spirituality. You follow me? So an improper expectation could rob you in this process if you're not careful. The third would be coercion. Listen, you don't have to do this. There's total freedom here. Nobody's going to be looking over your shoulder and going, well, the, the real seven-mile rotors, like really fasting. Listen, there, this is, your hand is not forced. This is a space of freedom. You can say in house church, I'm not doing it. It's not the right season for me. I'm not, my heart's not quite ready. This is a safe place to say that, and we're all going to go, yeah, that makes sense. You don't have to. There are some that have physical concerns where maybe you have a contested relationship with food in your past, and this is a triggering exercise this is a safe place to say, I, it's not healthy for me to step into this. That's okay. It's, it's a safe place to be a nursing mom <laughs> and say, I can't do this right now. I have one of those living at my house. She can't give up food right now. That's, that's okay. So I just want you to hear total freedom in this space as we enter into this process because our legalism or our improper expectations, our coercion could really interrupt what God wants to do in our midst. Um, so a few handles, if we are going to think about this, the ways that we are going to step into this. Um, just, I've, I've, I've received some of these questions, so I want to make sure that you had these tools. Uh, Dave Clayton wrote a book called Revival Starts Here. It's a free ebook online, and it's, it's an explanation of fasting in about 40 pages. It's a great, simple read. I'd encourage you to download that. I just want to summarize. He talks about four different types of fasts in that book. One is what he calls, um, what's his language? A major fast. A major fast is what you see like Moses or Jesus do, where it's maybe like water only all day or maybe multiple days. This is an intense sort of thing. If you haven't fasted before, a major fast is the sort of thing that you want to enter into slowly. This is, this is kind of an intense undertaking. 
That, that's one potential. Um, a minor fast is what some call a Jewish fast. This is where it's sun up to sundown. When the sun goes down, eating a simple meal after sundown. This sometimes can help expand or extend a fast. If you're doing one simple meal a day to fuel your body, but you're cultivating hunger, that's, that's a way to kind of do a minor fast. What he calls a partial fast is what we see Daniel doing in the book of Daniel. Uh, and uh, where he gives up all of the sumptuous foods. The idea is that every time he sits down to eat, it's not about pleasure. It's not about being fully satisfied. It's about in that moment of just eating a small handful of nuts or some fruits and veggies and still kind of being hungry and not totally satisfied, that in that space, you're reminding yourself that you're, you're cultivating a hunger for God. That's a good option. The last is one that we don't see in the scriptures, but is pertinent in our day and time. He calls it a soul fast. The only sort of fast we see in the scriptures is giving up food. But there's other ways to cultivate hunger for God. It may be that you want to set aside television or social media, setting aside something. The idea is the thing that you run to to find comfort and satisfaction, you want to lay that aside. And every time the natural inclination in your heart to go to that place bubbles up, you run to God and you say, fill me up fresh and full. This is what we're talking about cultivating hunger for God. So how, how do we give our very best to God? In this text, we see that it's enveloped by fasting and prayer, cultivating hunger in appropriate ways. This is what opens these people up. It's, it's, it prepares them to hear from God. The second note is this, along those lines, that as they're fasting and praying, what they are living with is an anticipation that God's voice is available. How do we release our very best to God? It's prayer and fasting with an expectation that God's voice is available to us. We serve a speaking God. And if you study the New Testament, you just read it straight through and you go, what's normative? What should we expect as the people of God? The expectation, if you're just reading the scriptures and, and engaging with them with trust that they are authoritative and true, the expectation is God speaks to his people. Did you see it in this text? I just want you to see how nonchalantly, without explanation or description, Luke records these truths. You see, in verse 1, he says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now, that phrase is one that we see through, show up throughout the book of Acts. It gets explained in places like the book of Corinthians, where it's just expected that there are people whose spiritual gift is applying the word of God, hearing the word of God, and declaring the word of God in a way that applies to people's hearts in pointed, particular ways. The gift of prophecy functioning in the New Testament church is an expectation. An expectation that Luke doesn't have to feel like he has to slow down and explain because he trusts that first century Christians reading the story of the book of Acts are going to be like, oh yeah, the prophets. The people that in the times of prayer are hearing from God and speaking it over people's hearts and lives. He's going, that's, that's what's happening. There's, there's prophets and teachers there because that's what happens in the church. And then it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, every time I read that, I'm like, wow. Luke just, that's what, that's what happens at prayer gatherings in Antioch. 
We got together. It was enveloped in prayer and fasting. And we showed up with an expectation that there's people that are gifted to hear the word of God and speak the word of God. And there's teachers that help explain it and make sure that it's clear and running on the right lines and in alignment with the theological truths that God has revealed about himself. That we, we see prophets and teachers functioning together in such a way that when people get together and pray, they believe that the Holy Spirit is going to speak. It's not one-sided communication. I'm so sad that so many of us live our Christian life like prayer is a one-sided conversation. We don't, we don't have the New Testament anticipation. So many of us. We don't cultivate an expectation that God is going to speak. He's going to direct. Like my path and my life is going to be shaped by what he's saying. Fasting and prayer is like an adjusting of the bunny ears. You know, we, we don't have cable at our house. We've got the bunny ears, you know? And, uh, and the bunny ears work great. They just, you can't get Fox and CBS on the same arrangement. You get one or the other. So if, if we're watching the game on Fox, but then we want to get to CBS, somebody's got to adjust the bunny ears. And so it's, one of my boys is up there like, how about now? Standing behind the TV, you know? Uh, we're like, stop, don't move, that's it. And then he slowly backs away. It seems like in this moment, fasting and prayer is like an adjusting of the bunny ears. It's like I'm going to stop and I'm going to posture. I'm just going to prepare myself in such a way. Like I'm going to strip all the other stuff away. And every time I'm hungry, I'm going to drive my heart back to you. And I'm going to go, God, I'm here and I'm available. And I actually anticipate that you're the sort of God that will speak to me. Never in a way that's different or out of alignment with what you've revealed in the scriptures. We know God is a speaking God because he has spoken. But in speaking authoritatively and finally in the scriptures, it doesn't mean that he's not actively applying that word by the power of his spirit and pointed regular ways in the moments where we need it. And we want to be the sorts of people that are willing and ready to hear. You see, I think if we're going to release our very best to God, it's because we're we're living with an expectation that he might ask for it. He might directly say, hey, I'm, I'm calling you into this space. I'm calling you to respond in this way. The aim is that we would be the sort of people that operate in the fullness of wisdom and the fullness of the Spirit. That we have plans and strategies. And saying that God can speak and direct us, it doesn't mean that we lay aside all planning and all strategy and go, I'm just waiting for God to direct that's not the model that we see in the New Testament. Paul is an apostolic church planting missionary that sets out and he's got plans. Every time he's writing, he's going, here's my plan. I'm going to come see you. You're going to fund me. Then I'm headed over there. This is where we're going. This is how it's going to unfold. But we also see that when he gets to a place and goes, now we're going into Asia. And then it says the Holy Spirit prevented us. And then we try to go this way, and he stopped us as we were praying. And then all of a sudden we had a dream, and he called us to Macedonia. Here's a strategic person with strong plans that holds them with an open hand. He anticipates that God's voice will direct, even as there's the fullness of wisdom as they set out the best plan for how to go about it. What would it look like to live with an anticipation that the Lord would speak to you? to submit to those around you that are praying for you and that, that may say humbly and graciously, hey, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but as I was praying for you, the scripture came to mind and I was just thinking about this thing that you named me and I just wanted you to consider maybe God has this for you. We wanna be the sort of community 
that is speaking God's word to one another in that way, that when we feel a prompting, or we, we feel the freedom to say, hey, I just want to share this with you. We want to expect that God is and will speak to us. He is speaking and he will continue to do so. Lastly, this journey of releasing our very best to God. It's enveloped by prayer and fasting. There's an anticipation that he's speaking and he will direct us. He will call for us to open our fingers on things. And then lastly, this all happens under the direction of this interesting, kind of diverse, unified leadership. They're diverse and they're qualified and they're unified. I just want you to see the leaders that are at the center of this prayer gathering. Now, it says that these five were praying, but the text makes it clear in the way that the commentators read the, the structure of this language is that the whole church is praying and fasting and at the center there's these five leaders. So it's not just these five at the prayer gathering. It's the church of Antioch praying and then there's these leaders that are named a stunning cross-section of leaders that are in Antioch. Barnabas, his real name is Joseph. He is a Levite from the island of Cyprus. So he is professionally religious. He is from the island of Cyprus. He has been given a nickname by the apostles that is Barnabas. That means son of encouragement. They're like, you can't stop encouraging people. Your new name is son of encouragement. And then he never gets called Joseph again. He's only Barnabas. That's this guy professionally religious, older, probably uh, 50s, 60s, maybe even older. Simeon, who is called Niger. Niger means black. Simeon is an African leader. Many think it's Simon of Cyrene, the man that carried Jesus's cross under compulsion by the guards. If so, this man was literally covered by the blood of Jesus. He saw the death of Jesus closer maybe than any other human being. And we don't know if he was already a follower of Jesus, but we know that after that experience, he was. He became a leader in the life of Jesus' church. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is also in Africa, probably where Simeon is from. They're probably both from this same area, if it is in fact Simon of Cyrene. And so here's two African leaders. 40% of the five key leaders in Antioch were African. The other three were Middle Eastern. Just as an aside, the key leadership in Jesus's church that started the church planting movement was brown and black. People that look like me were very late to the game. Just whenever we're tempted to believe that this is like a white man's religion, it certainly wasn't. This leadership team of African and Middle Eastern cross-section of really interesting people. It says Menaean was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Menaean, a lifelong friend, that literally means like an adopted brother. He was raised in Herod's home. <laughs> he was there being raised up when they were trying to kill the babies because they thought the new Messiah was in the area. His buddy that he raised with was the one that was responsible for John the Baptist's death. He grew up in that home. And now he's on the leadership team because in the midst of it all, he saw the indestructibility and the beauty of Jesus' life in a way that he became a worshiper of him. Herod, or pardon me, of Herod the Tetrarch. And then lastly, Saul, who we know to have been a persecutor of the church, a murderer of Christians. So the one that grew up next to the guy that killed John the Baptist, the one who actually killed Christians, from different backgrounds, the great theologian, 
and former Jewish leader. Here they all are together. The only way that these leaders come together is by the grace of Jesus. And they're the sort of leadership team prepared to make really great kingdom decisions because they see the world beyond just their own particular lens. And I, I do believe that we're in a unique moment in the city of Houston that I just want to help encourage you with as we close, that you're going to, over the next several weeks, every day be receiving a daily devotional written by a different leader from the city of Houston who's engaged in this season of prayer and fasting. Wildly different leaders from different churches, from different parts of the city, whose hearts are beginning to align. And what you will see is that daily, they're going to be writing devotionals that line up with the sermon series that you've just heard in the month of January, because many have been preaching through this sermon series that, that was given birth to here in our community. So daily, these are the prayers that you're going to be invited to pray through. On Mondays, you're going to be invited to repent. Repentance is where we started this journey, back on on New Year's Day. To repent was the first R that we talked about. The second was the R from Joel of return to the heart of God. So on Tuesdays, you're going to be called to return to God's heart with wholehearted from different leaders all across this city. On Wednesday, you're going to be invited to relinquish your life. As you think about Esther, Queen Esther, who laid down her life and called the people to fast and pray. You remember when we talked about her? And then the requests we saw last week the request in Ezra 8, and we talked about lunch. We're inviting you to pray for your lunch. That's to pray for love explosions and unity in the church and no hidden sin and for the conversion of non-Christian and the health of your leaders. We're saying we're going to pray specific requests on Thursday. And Friday, we're talking about releasing our very best in generosity. And then you're going to get to the weekend and you're going to get devotionals on Saturday and Sunday about revival. Because we actually think these five arts, we, we can't twist God's arm. We can't make him do something. But we think a fasting, praying community that's aligned around these five arts, that when that starts to take root in our souls, the definition of the working definition of revival that you see up there is from Ray Orland. It says, a season where God causes normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary power. This is what we're hungering for. I don't know what it will look like for you as an individual. I don't know what it would look like for us as a community. What I do know is that if we are aligned around these things and we experience God's extraordinary power moving in our midst, we will never be satisfied with less. It will change the, the level of our joy, our ability to experience and love his presence. That's what I want for us as a community. That's what you're being invited into. And, and as you read these daily devotionals, they're typically written by people of our community. But as the whole city has leaned in, it'll be different this time because you're going to get to daily read something written by a key leader from a different community in our city. That's what you'll be receiving in your inbox starting tomorrow. Lastly, we're talking about giving our very best to God. And it's so crucial that we finish here. We don't give great gifts to God in hopes that he'll finally love us. It's not what we do. This is not a work of religion to go, look, God, we're so serious about you. Would you finally be, have a disposition towards me for my pleasure and my good? Would you love me? Because look, I'm giving you everything. This is not 
the act of Christian worship, as you know, friends. We love and give good gifts because we were loved first and given the great gift first. When we talk about releasing our very best to God, the reason we do that is because of what we're about to remember. When you come to the table that Jesus has set for you, the declaration of God is, look, I've given you my very best. I gave you my heart. Like I didn't withhold anything from you my own son, to win you back and call you my own, I would go to any length. I have released my very best, and you don't have to earn my affection. It's yours. You are treasured in my sight. You are cherished. The invitation over the next month is not to engage in some religious activity that's, that's begging God to give us his affection. It is an invitation to let your heart respond to what has already been given, to recognize that the great gift giver is God himself. That because of his love for a sinful world, sent his only son to die for us, that we might taste eternal life as we place our trust in him. As we set our gaze on the table, let the goodness of that gift wash over your soul and unlock in you true generosity that we would release our very best to him in this season. Let me pray for us. Yeah, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that right now you would expose in each heart the place where we're holding back, where we think we know better where we think we need to cling to our time or to our treasure or to our talents, to our lives, to our schedules. I pray, God, that we would release our very best to you. I pray that each man and woman in this room would see that you have loved them like no one else ever could. I pray for my non-Christian friends in the room. I'm so glad they're here. Even now, by the power of your spirit, would you communicate the beauty of your love, the truth of your love that stamped in human history, you have made a declaration that you have loved us to death and back. Give my friends eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory. I pray that they would run to him and experience life. And for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would renew our vision, that as we adjust the bunny ears, that we would hear from you this month, that you would speak and we would be changed. God, come and speak. Your servants are listening. Amen.